How many of you guys were here last week? A lot of you guys. I wasn't here. I'm sorry. Aaron and I were in Denver, and I was actually talking about some of the same stuff at the master plan meeting up there. And I thought, we got to do this again at our campus. The last time we did this here was when Leah was first a freshman, so it's been about four years or so. It's been a long time. But I want to start with a verse. It's Jeremiah 29, 13. And this is where God himself says that you're going to find him if you search for him with all your heart. So not passively, but if you really search, you're going to find him. Bottom line. So on that note, we're going to talk about some reasons to believe. Some ways that you can know God is real and that you can know God is true. Some reasons that you can be confident in what you believe. I'm going to go over a lot in a short period of time. We only have about half an hour. I'm going to try and cram it in. So bear with me. Okay, so a big note is that I'm going to be using tons of different resources. I can't even quote them all, guys, but not all this stuff is for me. In fact, most of it isn't for me. That's the, that's the joy of serving God is, is it's not all about me or David or any of you guys. There are millions of other people that love Jesus. And so we can all work on each other's shoulders. If you have anything that you walk away encouraged with tonight, it wasn't for me. It was right from God and from other people that have worked on it their whole lives. So I want to start by saying basically you are here either as a product of nothing or as a product of a creator. Does that make sense? Guys, and I'm not even going to go into the whole evolution talk right now. That's a different topic for a different time. I hope all of you guys were at the open forum last year on that topic. We're going to be doing another open forum. It will be uh, with the secular humanists on the topic of does faith matter and is it useful. And so anyway, it should be interesting. That will be November 30th, Monday. Okay, so just put that in the back of your minds. It'll be fun. It's hot off the press. Nobody even knows about that yet. So anyway, either you're here as a result of a creator or you're here as a result of nothing. Nothing does not float. The first law of thermodynamics says that matter cannot be created or destroyed. There had to be a beginning. There's no rule of science that tells me where all this stuff could come from on its own. At some point, there was a creator. And I believe that creator... If he went through the trouble of creating this universe, did so in a way that he could be found. That's why God said, if you search for me with all your heart, you will find me, right? He intended to be found by his creation. And I believe that God's always going to stand apart from all the wannabes. Michael Jordan, nobody compares with him, at least when he was in his prime. Isn't that right, David? See, if you put God up against a bunch of posers... You're going to know which one is God and which one the posers are, right? You're going to know which ones aren't legit and which one is legit. And I am going to go over a few reasons that I think you can know confidently that the God of the Bible is the God of the universe. And there is no other. Sometimes people think, isn't that a little bad of you to say that Jesus is the only way? Somebody told me this in, in the snack bar last week. And I said, absolutely not. Everything you know is exclusive. 2 plus 2 always equals 4. H2O is always water. Truth, reality is exclusive. If you jump off a cliff, you always die. It doesn't matter what you feel about the cliff. It doesn't matter what your opinion of the cliff is. You are always going to die. Truth is truth, and that's all there is to it. So if God exists, He is one God and that's it. And all the other gods are fakes. This idea that every God is the same God... It does not jive with logic or reality. Either he's real, and he's one God, or he's not real, and he's no God. But he isn't all gods. And that's not a mean thing. Because the God of the Bible offers us mercy, love, and compassion in a way that no other religion offers to anyone. He reaches out his hand, desiring a personal relationship with each of us and with each of you, in a way that no other figure that's ever claimed to be God has ever done. So it's not a mean thing at all. This is great news. It's not bad news. So I believe that you can be confident that the God of the Bible is the God of the universe. 
And here are a few reasons why. So, coming from a science perspective, my degree was in chemistry here, I have to start with science in the Bible. The Bible talks a lot about science. The Bible talks about science. It's not a science textbook, guys. So we're not going to find all scientific truth in the Bible. That wasn't God's point. His whole point was to write us about spiritual truth, okay? But he put enough science in there so that we could know that he is scientifically on track. See, if, if God was revealing himself through the Bible and the Bible was scientifically off base, then he probably wouldn't be the real God, right? So when we see scientific accuracies in the Bible... It is affirmation that this was written by the guy that created science in the first place. Okay? The Bible talks about radioactive decay. Does that blow your mind? 2 Peter 3.10. It's almost a textbook definition for radioactive decay. For hundreds of years, scientists said elements cannot decompose. They cannot break down. Until uh, about 100 years ago, Becquerel, right here, we have a picture of him, discovered radioactivity in 1896. The Bible talked about that 2,000 years ago. Hydrologic cycles of condensation and evaporation, clouds and rain. The Bible discusses that 4,000 years ago. Atmospheric jet streams. How could somebody 4,000 years ago discover an atmospheric jet stream, right? They could never get up there. The Bible talks about atmospheric jet streams 3,500 years ago. Uh, 4,000 years ago, again, it talks about clouds and condensation. 3,000 years ago, the Bible says that the earth was spherical. How in the world would the writer of that book 3,000 years ago know that the Bible is spherical? How many of you guys have heard the Bible says the world is flat? <laughs> it's not true. The Bible said it was spherical back when everybody else thought it was flat. And see, God was proving in His Word that He was right and the skeptics were wrong. Okay, The Bible talks about the expansion of the universe in multiple places. This wasn't even discovered until 1929. The Bible wrote that 4,000 years ago in the book of Job. That's unreal. The expansion of the universe. Discovered by Edwin Hubble based on Einstein's theory of general relativity. The Bible says that Earth's foundation is hung on nothing. That was written 4,000 years ago. A lot of other religious books say the Greeks said Apollos holds up the earth, and other traditions said turtles held up the earth, or this or that. The Bible said, look, the earth is suspended on nothing. Nothing holds up the earth. Exactly what science has confirmed. The Bible says the air has weight. That was written 4,000 years ago, also in the book of Job. How in the world would that writer have known that air has weight? How can you figure that out? Okay. That was found out in modern science by uh, Lavoisier. Okay, the Bible talks about hydrothermic vents or freshwater springs in the ocean. How could you ever discover freshwater springs in the ocean in that day? It would be impossible. The Bible says that like begets like, but that's a biological law. You're not going to give birth to a cat, okay? And your cat is not going to give birth to a mouse. You're going to give birth to a human. Well, you women. <laughs> when I was single, I always thought it was weird when couples said we're pregnant, and then when you get married, you find yourself saying it. It's kind of weird. Anyway, and by the way, you guys all know that Aaron's pregnant? <laughs> Who's Aaron? No, just kidding. Okay. The Bible says that like begets like a biological law written 3,500 years ago. The Bible describes the second law of thermodynamics, that everything is going towards disorder. Multiple times it says that the universe is unraveling like a garment, that it's going towards disorder. This was written, you guys, 3,000 years ago. 
thousands of years before modern science caught up. And then finally, about 100 years ago, in 1923, not even 100 years ago, uh, Jenkins invented the television, which all of you guys probably have in your dorm rooms. This was a scientific reality that the Bible discussed 2,000 years ago, but it's also a prophetic reality, okay? And we're going to go into prophecy in a minute. But it's a scientific reality because the Bible said that in two places, in Matthew and in Revelation, two books of the Bible, it said that Jesus' return would be seen everywhere in the world. How could one event be seen everywhere in the world live? Television. That's it. So the Bible both prophetically described that, but it's also a scientific accuracy that was mentioned. I don't have any idea how anyone naturally could figure that out 2,000 years ago, but it's a reality today. So the Bible is scientifically accurate, proving to me that the author of God's Word, of the Bible, understood the science of the world that he created. Now going into the Bible's prophecy, lots of religious books make prophetic claims, but they don't ever come true. And some of them will get close to coming true, like you guys have heard of Nostradamus, not necessarily a religious text, but he made some prophetic claims that were near hitting the nail on the head, but not quite there. And because of that, he gets all this fame and notoriety. The Bible, hundreds of times upon hundreds of times, makes prophetic claims that are 100% accurate, never falsified. Some of those are happening even today. Israel became a nation in 1948. And it became a nation in one day by a declaration of the United Nations. The Bible said that Israel, in the future, would become a nation in one day. Isn't that amazing? So not only did it become a nation, but it happened in one day, just as the Bible prophesied. Going into other prophecies, guys, Jesus alone fulfilled over 300. The odds of him fulfilling just 8 are 1 in 10 to the 17th power. He did over 300. Jesus was the Messiah prophesied all through the Bible. Jesus' crucifixion was prophesied a thousand years before crucifixion was even invented. Blows my mind. Alexander the Great was prophesied in such great detail in the book of Daniel in chapter 8 that critics said it was post-written history. Does that make sense? Critics said there's no way it could be that accurate. Daniel says that there's going to be a great warrior from the West. He's going to die an early death. His empire is going to split into four, and those four are going to recombine into two. Pretty accurate. Exactly what happened with Alexander the Great. And critics said it's so accurate, there's no way it was written before Alexander the Great. Because at the time, our earliest copy of the book of Daniel was from after Alexander the Great. And then in 1948 also, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which predated that earliest copy by a thousand years, putting the book of Daniel long before Alexander the Great. There's not a critic alive now that can define it as post-written history. Everybody has to admit the Bible nailed that prophecy dead on. Okay? The Bible talked about the rebuilding of Jerusalem a hundred years before Jerusalem was destroyed. But get this, it mentioned who would rebuild Jerusalem, Cyrus, by name, a hundred years before the guy was even born. Isn't that shocking? Okay, prophetically accurate beyond anything you can imagine. That was in Isaiah 44, 28. Tyre's destruction was prophesied in such great detail that there are modern textbooks that describe the condition of Tyre today that are almost word for word identical to the biblical prophecy. So the Bible is scientifically accurate, guys. It's prophetically accurate, guys. It is historically accurate. This is something that is so amazing. So many religious texts attempt to be historical. The Book of Mormon talks about Jewish Native American tribes spanning the North American continent. There's never been a Hebrew artifact uncovered in North America. I'm not trying to diss on Mormons too much, but their history is not history. The Bible makes historical claims that are historically verifiable. 
The Hittites were a group of people that the Bible discussed, and for years there was no archaeological evidence for the Hittites. And critics would say over and over and over, the Bible is wrong because it talks about a group of people that never existed. Even though all the other people the Bible talks about we have on on archaeology, they took this one group of people and said, nope, they, they couldn't have existed. But now we found multiple Hittite cities, the entire Hittite language. There's not a critic alive that doesn't believe that the Hittites existed. But see, the Bible told us before archaeology ever found that the Hittites existed. The Bible also talked about the census of Caesar Augustus at the time of Christ's birth. These are just a couple examples. But in Luke, you'll remember that Joseph and Mary were returning to Bethlehem for a census. Well, the archaeological evidence for that census has been discovered. Okay, so the Bible's historically accurate. It's prophetically accurate. It's scientifically accurate. And the Bible is full of mathematical and prophetic codes. This will kind of blow your mind. In both the Hebrew and in the Greek, each letter had a numerical equivalent. Like the letter N might be 7. The letter A might be 2. Does that make sense? So each number had a, a numerical equivalent. And when you look at those letters and the words that they make out... All the sums come out to be prime numbers over and over and over again. Like the number 7 appears everywhere, all through the Old and New Testaments. Just one example, in Genesis 1.1, there are 7 words, a multiple of 7 obviously, 28 letters, a multiple of 7. The numerical equivalent of the nouns adds up to 777. The numerical value of the only verb is 203, a multiple of 7. The first three words contain the subject and have 14 letters. A multiple of seven. The other four words are the object now 14 letters, a multiple of seven. And the words for the two objects each have seven letters. It's pretty fantastic. Genesis 1-1 has 30 multiples of seven in one verse. The chances of that have been calculated at one in 33 trillion. So it's not just that some old schooler in a cave was sitting around writing stuff just because he felt like it. And it came out Genesis. No, this was divinely inspired in such a way that God left his fingerprints on every single verse. It's the same thing in the New Testament. That was the first verse out of the Old Testament. Let's go to the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew 1, 1 through 11. The first chapter of Matthew, just the first part of it, has 49 words, a multiple of 7. 266 letters, a multiple of 7. 140 are vowels, a multiple of 7. 126 consonants, a multiple of 7. 49 words, a multiple of 7. 28 begin with a vowel, a multiple of 7. 21 begin with a consonant. 7 end with a vowel, 42 end with a consonant. 14 occur only once, 35 occur more than once. 42 are nouns, 7 are not. It just is mind-boggling, these patterns that you see over and over again. In 1882, Ivan Pannon, a Harvard mathematician, presented 43,000 pages, 43,000 pages of these mathematical codes from the Bible as his evidence that the Bible was God's Word. The Nobel Foundation that does the Nobel Science Prizes The Nobel Foundation replied, quote, As far as our investigation has proceeded, we find the evidence overwhelmingly in favor of such a statement. Pretty amazing, guys. Pretty amazing. That's just the math behind what you read in the Bible. So you read it here, then there's math behind that. Then there's even more behind that. Get this. If you go to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and then also in Exodus, at 50-letter intervals, you see Torah spelled out. Torah was the Hebrew word for God's word, okay? And you see at 50-letter intervals right there, this is a picture of the text, you see Torah spelled out. Pretty fascinating. That's in both the first and second books of the Bible. Now, you go to Leviticus, it's not, there's nothing at 50-letter intervals. So, you go to Numbers and Deuteronomy, the fourth and fifth books, and at 50-letter intervals again, you don't see Torah, but you see Erot, or Torah backwards. You guys see that? So, it's 
Torah, Torah, and then nothing in the middle, and then Arot, Arot. It's almost like arrows are pointing from both sides. Does that make sense? So you go back and look at Leviticus and go, what, what is everything pointing to? What is God trying to leave a fingerprint for in the background here, okay? So you go to Leviticus, and there's nothing at 50-letter intervals, but at 7-letter intervals you find Yahweh, the name of God. Mind-boggling. You see how God is divinely letting us figure out that he was inspiring this text. This is not an accident. This wasn't just some guy writing some book because he felt like it. This was God giving us the truth of the universe and leaving his fingerprints all over it so we would have no question. But remember that verse I said at the beginning? He said, if you search for me with all your heart, you'll find me. He didn't just say, if you're flipping about it, you'll find me. He said, search with all your heart. So when we dig in, guys, we find him. There are prophetic codes embedded throughout the text, other things like that. We're not even going to get into that. Fundamentally, guys, the Bible's authors agree. Now, if you took 40 of us in this room, you couldn't get us to agree on matters of religion and sin and death and heaven and hell and life and the meaning of life. Even though we come from such similar backgrounds, guys, we wouldn't agree on all those issues. Yet the 40 authors of the Bible agree perfectly. It's phenomenal. Okay, so the Bible's authors agree, even though they came from different backgrounds, social status, languages, and ethnicities. They all agree with each other. The Bible is textually authentic. How many of you guys have heard the lie that it's been translated so many times? How do we know it was originally written? Have you ever heard that? Well, without getting into too much of the evidence, uh, but there's tons there. You can talk to David about that later if you want, or Leah. They can both tell you all about it. But basically, there are thousands of copies of the earliest manuscripts of the Bible. No error could have developed in that time frame. And they all agree perfectly. There aren't two books of Matthew that disagree with each other. Does that make sense? All the books of Matthew are the book of Matthew. There's nothing different. There have been a lot of translations from the Bible, but we still have all the originals. All the modern translations that you get, for the most part, go right back to those originals. Pretty much everything that any of you guys read in here. So there's no question about what was really written. And the critics know that. They like to bring that question up just to throw doubt into your mind. But it's not really a valid question. Okay? So the Bible is textually accurate. Its authors agree. It's mathematically, prophetically accurate. It's historically accurate. It's scientifically accurate. It's unbelievable what God has done to show us that His Word is accurate in the Bible. The Bible also has the power to change lives. Look at the story that we heard tonight of what God can do in somebody's heart. You guys can maybe change your actions. I think, though, that there's a lot you can't change. But what's so good about God is He changes our heart, and He uses His Word to do it. And so the Bible has the power to change human beings. Just look around this room. Now, fundamentally about the story of Jesus, and I just want to touch on this a bit, because let's say the Bible is true. Well, what about Jesus? I'm trusting this guy with my salvation. So he better have got it right, right? Death used to be my biggest doubt, guys. I've had a lot of doubts, and I've gone back and researched them and studied, but death was the biggest one that always hit me. And finally, I realized in John 6.40, Jesus promised that if I believed in him, he would raise me up. It was a personal promise from Jesus himself to each one of us. And I said, I'm going to take him up on it. Okay, I'm going to believe him. I'm going to trust him. And here are some reasons that we can trust him. Most of Jesus' disciples, 11 out of 12, and many of the early church founders died for the message that they shared. This is not the same as people dying for a belief. A lot of people die for a belief... But when these men died, if they had been fabricating the story, they were dying for a known lie. And all of them did. 
except one who was tortured mercilessly. If it was just a lie that they're making up, somebody would have been like, okay, don't kill me. We made it up. I want to live. They all were willing to go to gruesome deaths because they knew what Jesus had said and lived and done. And they were willing to die for it. Okay? Uh, It's been said, there have been many accounts of, oh, the body was moved or Jesus didn't really die. All those are just baloney. Right? If the body was moved, the authorities could have just produced it and said, nope, he's dead. See? Right here. Uh, He really died, guys. He was speared in the side. John talks about water and blood coming out of that wound. That, that's a medical reality called pericardial effusion. It's something that you couldn't have forged if you were just writing that stuff down. And it's evidence that he truly was dead. There are many other evidences. But guys, there are historical evidences that we can trust Jesus' death and resurrection. There are evidences outside of the Bible. Like Josephus, a historian at the time, and some of your professors here will criticize Josephus. That's fine. Go to the Jewish Toledoth Jeshu. It's a Jewish text that was antagonistic against Christianity. In that text, it admitted that the tomb was empty. So even the Jewish response from the earliest time admitted there was not a body in that tomb. The body was gone. The Jews had no belief that the Messiah would die in the first place. If these guys were just fabricating this evidence, they wouldn't have said, oh, the the Messiah died. Because they didn't believe the Messiah would die in the first place. To them, death would have proved he wasn't the Messiah. So the story of Jesus' death didn't really jive with what a lot of the Jews expected to happen to the Messiah. And death by crucifixion was evidence of God's curse, the Bible said. So surely, you would never think that the Messiah would be cursed by God. Cursed to the point of dying on a cross. All these are evidences that they didn't fabricate this story, guys. If you look at Jesus' burial, there are more evidences. He was buried by Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Sanhedrin that actually convicted Jesus to death. If this was a fabrication, they wouldn't have glorified their own nemesis. They wouldn't have said the guy that crucified him, he's the guy that buried him and gave him this honorable burial. The other thing is that everybody would have known where Joseph's burial would have been because he was a public figure, like a senator. And so anybody that doubted could have gone to the tomb and seen for themselves. There are no competing independent burial stories. If it were a fabrication, there would have been other burial accounts too. If the disciples made this up, somebody else would have been saying something different. There's nothing else. He died, he was buried, the body was gone. The body was gone. A Roman seal was placed over the two-ton rock over the entrance to the tomb. Breaking a Roman seal was punishable with upside-down crucifixion. A two-ton rock was placed in front of the tomb. The disciples couldn't have moved that out of the way. A Roman guard, the most elite army force of the time, was placed there to guard it. There's no way they could have been defeated. And on top of that, if they fell asleep on the job, they were burned to death with a fire starter with their own clothes. So the idea that the highest trained army unit in the land would fall asleep on the job and let the disciples run away with the body is just a farce. It could never have happened. And when they found Jesus' tomb empty, the guard fled, which also would have been punishable by death. These guys knew what was happening. The tomb was found empty by women. In the first century AD, a woman's testimony wasn't even accepted in court. Right? So if, if the disciples were just making up this story about Jesus' death, surely they wouldn't have attributed the finding of the risen Lord to women, if they were making it up. Because nobody would believe women, because their testimony wasn't even accepted in court. But the fact that the gospel writers attributed the discovery of the risen Christ to women shows that they weren't faking this. They were just writing down exactly what happened. Because in that culture, if you wanted to prove a point, you would have said men found him. 
But no, they were honest about who Jesus really revealed himself to first. There are supposed discrepancies, guys, about the burial story the resurrection. They all make sense if you just look into it a little bit. And if you have any of those questions, feel free to talk to me. I'm trying to race through this, so I'm not going to go too much into that. But basically, the earliest Jewish response recorded in the Bible also said there is an empty tomb. What was recorded in the Bible? So other evidences for the resurrection, I'm going to close it out in just a minute here. Um, There were hundreds of eyewitnesses, the Bible tells us, over 500 eyewitnesses. If you had over 500 eyewitnesses to any crime on this campus, that guy is going to jail. Okay? And there were over 500 eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection. That's powerful. That's powerful news, guys. That's powerful. Okay? Those also included hostile witnesses, like the Apostle Paul, that were persecuting and killing Christians because they are so against them. And Jesus, as a risen Lord, revealed himself to Paul and many others. The Christians didn't believe the first news of the resurrection. They're fabricating this. Surely they wouldn't have said, oh yeah, but we all doubted it. The Christian creed, which is the earliest documentation of what Christians believed, asserted the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins. The apostles used Christ's resurrection as proof for the gospel. Oftentimes the gospel writers would say, boom, you, you crucified Christ and he rose from the dead. And that's our proof that he is Lord and Savior. They would use his death and resurrection as proof. Okay, Jesus predicted his own death and his own resurrection. And the disciples adamantly claimed that Jesus rose physically. This is really unique, guys. If they were just fabricating this, they easily could have said, hey, it was a spiritual resurrection. Jesus rose spiritually. Oh, we don't need a body. He rose spiritually. How can you argue with us? But they went all the way and said, no, he rose physically. So they made their claim falsifiable. If there was a body, you could have disproved them right then. Because they knew the reality that he had risen. And why is that important, guys? Because he promised to offer you eternal life. Nobody else has ever beaten death that promised you eternal life. There are a lot of other religions that say, believe in us and you'll go to heaven. But coincidentally, none of their proponents have ever beaten death themselves. Jesus alone offered you that salvation and proved it by beating death himself. Conquering death and sin for you and me. So the summary, guys, is that God exists and He is the God of the Bible. The bottom line is the Bible alone is authentic and the Bible alone answers life's big questions. When you guys think, where did I come from? Where did everything else come from? Who am I? Why am I alive? How can I know right from wrong? What's going to happen after I die? When you guys think those questions that a lot of college students try to ignore, but obviously you guys are here tonight, I think you've been thinking about those questions. The Bible has the answers to those things. It tells us where you came from. It's not an accident. God has a plan and a purpose for you. He loves you. There's a reason for you being here, and you're going to be with Him if you trust in Him for all of eternity. So for you believers, for you that have a relationship with God, I want you to be able to be confident about your belief in God, and to be able to be confident about your faith. I tell people, don't take a blind leap of faith, take a confident step of faith. So I hope you're confident in who you're trusting, But beyond that, guys, there's another reason to share this. And this is cool. Matthew 9.37 says the harvest is ripe. In other words, the people out there on that campus, inside, they're hungry and they're searching. Aren't you? Has anybody ever satisfied the way God satisfies, like you were talking about tonight, David? Only He satisfies. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, I'm going to give him real water, and if he drinks that water, he'll never thirst again. If you think of the deepest longings of your heart, Only Christ offers 
the solution to those. Only Christ satisfies. And so what I want to encourage you believers with is that there are a lot of people that need to hear the gospel out there. And they're hungry. They might not even know it. But they're searching inside for meaning and for a savior. So be confident about the gospel that you're sharing with them. And come Thursday to the cafeteria from 11 to 1.30. It'll be fun. We'll do the solarium right in front of the cafeteria. He put everything on the line for you guys, so go big for him too. Share it boldly and clearly. That's what Paul said. He said, pray for me that I would share the gospel boldly and clearly. So I want to encourage you guys to share it boldly and clearly. Now finally, if you're not a believer, here are the four most fundamental biblical principles that you could ever hear. Number one, God loves you intimately and dearly. He says his thoughts for you outnumber the sand of the seas. That's a number that no human word can describe. It's so big. That's how much God loves you. And he has a plan for your life. But there's a problem. You and me, Sam, Justin, Mark, every one of us, even kind little Linda over there, every one of us is sinful. Every one of us is selfish and does things our way. We think thoughts we shouldn't think. We do things we shouldn't do. We say things we shouldn't say. We treat people ways we shouldn't treat people. We're selfish and we know it. And that separates us from God. God's perfect. I'm not. I can't be with a perfect God when I'm imperfect. It just doesn't work. So God loves me and has a plan for my life, but I'm sinful and I'm separated from Him. But thankfully, guys, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. We talked about some of the evidence for that tonight. And He beat death and He rose from the grave. And He conquered sin for you and me. So that I wouldn't have to do it on my own. My sins are paid for. I don't earn my salvation by working harder. I realize that He did it for me and He offers me a free gift. And that's the fourth principle. Is I have to decide whether or not I'm going to take him up on his offer and receive that gift or not. It's pretty simple, but at the same time it's fundamentally very big. I don't earn it. I don't do anything to get my salvation. But at the same time, when I receive that gift, I sign everything over to him and make him the Lord of my life. It's pretty huge, guys. But Jesus puts it this way. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me knocking and opens the door, I'll come into him. That's what he's saying to each of us tonight.